Recording. Boom. Recording. Boom. Recording. Boom. I'm recording. All right. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by the other hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom to you, my friend. And the deputy editor of Tablet Magazine on the internet at http colon slash slash www.tabletmag.com, Stephanie Butnick. Semicolon, so nice to see you. Pet peeve of the past decade, people who say backslash when they just mean slash. <laughs> what is the difference? Backslash goes the other direction. Nobody ever really uses a backslash. Yeah, that backslash is a different key. Having run out of trouble, Mark finally <laughs> focuses on what truly matters. <laughs> the slash goes upper right to lower left. It's the one you use. When you think slash or if you're British virjul, as they call it, that's the one you're thinking of. Do you know what really tears America apart? People who say imply when they really mean infer. Them too. We're going to put them on an island to be fed to the backslashers. By the way, Scaramuccia, associate producer Robert Scaramuccia, when I said virtual, he blanched. He noticeably blanched. He blanched on the listener's behalf. <laughs> because we are on the pulse of everything, it so happens that we have a Jew of the Week, Mike Rothschild. Not of those Rothschilds, though. That would be interesting since he's a specialist in conspiracy theories. We recorded this interview a month or two ago, and what a great time to play the interview with Mike Rothschild, who is, again, a specialist in researching and debunking conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs. And he has gone deeper into QAnon than is healthy for any nice Jewish boy. As a researcher, deeper into QAnon, not as a participant. That's correct. It should also be said that two months ago when we recorded this conversation, we didn't think it was possible that a conspiracy theory that blames Jews for things would ever again research. So we're really very lucky here that this happened. <laughs> we are so on the cutting edge. And because you might want some, you know, some good stuff, some fun stuff, a little dessert wine to go with, with that heavy meal, Gentile of the Week, Stefan Fatsis. You might know him from his sports commentary on NPR or his massively best-selling book about competitive Scrabble, Word Freak. He has joined us to talk about another pet project of his, which is the Name of the Year competition, which he and some friends founded back in college a few decades ago, where every year they develop a bracket, an NCAA-style bracket, to choose the best name that has been in the news in the last year. And we are going to get his advice on how to create a Jewish name of the year bracket. And then we are going to crowdsource that to you, our listeners, the J Crew, And we're going to spend uh, the next few weeks coming up with the best Jewish name of the last year. Also, you have to stay tuned in this episode for our celebration of the 5th of Shvat. What was it that we misunderstood? How did this get going again? To be Shvat, the 15th of Shvat. To be Shvat. Which we misheard and misunderstood and bungled in our infinite ignorance. I like that we've already forgotten the origin story of this new made-up holiday. Like, that's how right. in, it's already intact fully, this this holiday in our consciousness. So, Tuba Shvat, which means kind of like the Ides of Shvat, the 15th, we misunderstood as the 5th of Shvat, and that's not a Jewish holiday. But now it is, and we're going to talk about, you know, how we plan to celebrate because it takes place on the Christian calendar this year, Monday, January 18th. So, so much fun stuff on this show. Also, perhaps the best mailbox to ever mailbox our mailbox. Lots of chatter about Canadian hockey, Zach Efron evangelizing the non-Jews. It's it's like the mailbox to end all mailboxim. Before we get there, Liel, how's your past week been? My past week has been informed by a revelation. So I'm, I'm here in New York City and I'm watching City Hall's complete and utter inability to deliver the vaccine to people who need it most. And then it struck me, I have the solution. Do you want to hear the solution to New York City's vaccine problems? Please. Here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deliver all doses to Chabad. 
Chabad is going to put them in mitzvah tanks. You're going to have people standing in street corners saying, excuse me, are you 65 and older? Excuse me, are you an essential worker? Excuse me, are you a doctor? And those who say yes, immediately they put on tefillin and they get a shot of the vaccine. Well, the tefillin is what they do to like tighten, you know, like when they put the thing on, you know, to take blood. Correct. So, so your vein comes out with the tefillin <laughs> and, then, and then they, you know, they give you the dose. It's a prophylactory. <laughs> I guarantee Chabad could do this in probably under three days. Eight million people will be done. I will say, though, like, you know, when you're walking down the street and someone's like, excuse me, do you have a moment for the children? Or like, excuse me, do you have a moment for the environment? <laughs> right. I was like, hell no. no, I do not. So if someone was like, excuse me, do you have time for a vaccine? I'd be like, I don't trust you. Stephanie, I would like to say so far the year is young, 2021. The secular year is young. But prophylactory, the phylacteries that also are medical prophylaxis, may be the word of the year. <laughs> Thank you. Strong Thank you. early entry by punster Stephanie Taylor. Button. Thank you. I will say that 2021 feels almost as long as 2020 at this point. Um, <laughs> is this year over yet? I think all of us, our listeners, the whole country, the whole world actually is sort of just reeling from what we saw last week on the Capitol. And particularly for Jews, really frightened by a lot of the imagery that we saw. There was a grizzly guy wearing a Camp Auschwitz shirt that said on the back, staff. Right, so it said Camp Auschwitz, and then below that, it said, work makes you free, which of course, translation of the gates of Auschwitz, Arbeit macht frei. And then on the back, it said, staff. Now here, I'm going to confess something, because this is horrifying that there is some sort of Holocaust minimizer or enthusiast who has crashed into the Capitol. But the touch were on the back, it said staff, like it was the camp staff sweatshirt. Is the freaking funniest thing ever. <laughs> I say, like, I'm so sorry. That is kind of funny. Like most people wearing Nazi paraphernalia don't get, like, I said to Rebecca, you know, our camp Romanic, I said, wouldn't it be great if it just said Roche Eda, right? Just like, right. <laughs> what, what hoog is he going to lead you in? Swimming? Lanyards? Eagle badge? Like what? <laughs> the only thing that would have been better that if it also had like a little sticker that says, hi, my name is Yaron. <laughs> It's, it's just weird. First of all, you know you have to pay more for the shirt that has something on the back, too. So, like, that that means that they really committed to this idea. Look, honestly, it is terrifying. First, I thought there was, like, something funny in it. Like, you know, there are people who say, like, oh, our grandparents went to camp together. Like, that's people have said that to me. Wait, meaning they were in Auschwitz together? Yeah, like, we, they were in camp together. That is just, like, a thing that people say. It's like a shorthand. Do they mean it funny? I saw someone at one of our events and said, she said, oh, my parents were in camp with your grandparents. And sometimes they say went to camp with, it's like a coping mechanism and it's a little funny. That's pretty funny. Actually, these guys don't get to say it. No, they don't get to say they it. They do no, not definitely. get to say it. But here's the thing. It's like this weird specificity that these anti-Semites have. You're like, you're wearing a staff at Camp Auschwitz shirt. That is so niche and specific and terrifying. Mm -hmm. And like, it's mm -hmm. the people who know more about the Holocaust. It's that weird thing that we've talked about before where like neo-Nazis and anti-Semites just like are obsessed with Jews. There's a video online of this Israeli newscaster, Ron Bocare, who's on air speaking Hebrew, like in front of the Capitol as a broadcaster. And someone basically confronts him and is like, what, what does goy mean? What is like, it pushes into his thing and is harassing him. And one of the things he says to him is, what does goy mean? And, and it's like, they're obsessed with that word goy. It's so creepy. Which by the way, what a huge missed opportunity because what Ron Bocare should have done on air at that exact moment, he should have turned to this person and be like, you want to know what a goy means? Let me ask you. Do you back into parking or or do you go front first? Hey, when you have leftovers, is this in Tupperware or in aluminum foil? Do you use top sheets, sir? There's like a four question, you know, questionnaire that we've already established to answer that question. It is really chilling. The whole, the scenes of everything were chilling. You see these guys in tactical gear with rifle, like 
that was frightening. And then with this weird, not subtle, anti-Semitic portion of it, like, yes, you saw Confederate flags. That is terrifying, too. Like, a Confederate flag in the building. Like, that is not right. That is that is horrible. And then I don't even have anything coherent to say because it is honestly so disturbing that these symbols are in this place. And then you have these these total nudniks, these Kuni Lemels, like Aaron Mostofsky, Orthodox Jews who are up there with, with them. them. And there is, and I think it's worth teasing this out. There definitely is a sensibility among some Jews who I think have authoritarian leanings and who, by the way, quite rightly are terrified of what they see as indifference to anti-Semitism on the left, that the comfortable place to be is on the the populist right. And they overlook the fact when they make alliances, you know, when they cozy up to Viktor Orban in Hungary or to the Nationalist Party in Poland or to the, the far right in France or Germany, they feel like these are people who understand security. These are people who often are preaching good relations with Israel. We can do business with them. And also these are people who are very outspoken against Arab terrorism, who don't sugarcoat it. And on one hand, that's perfectly comprehensible. On the other hand, never think that you can lie down on the camping trip with a bunch of fascist sympathizers and not wake up with the fleas of anti-Semitism. I mean, it's always there. That's always part of the DNA of a kind of authoritarian fascist mindset because they have irrational conspiracy theories. And where there are irrational conspiracy theories, there are irrational conspiracy theories about Jews. So I, I think it's it's so, it breaks my heart when I see Jews who think, the solution is a kind of bullying authoritarian populism. I agree with all that strongly and completely. I will add on a much more shallow note that when someone wearing fur and horns invites you to a party, there's at least a part of you that should be like, I don't know, maybe, because <laughs> this is college for me. Like, right. I don't know what we're doing, but okay, you seem like, <laughs> by the way, I'm sorry, the, the greatest <laughs> meme that I've seen about this, which will appeal the following joke is only intended to people who were of age in 1993. The favorite meme that I saw about this is the picture of the guy with the horns that said, and at some point, the acid started wearing off and Jamiroquai realized he had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Internet. So delighted to be part of the very specific audience for that meme, Liel. I'm glad you directed me there. You're welcome. Um, having missed that meme entirely, having that, that meme went right over my my cappy. No, I mean, this guy, Aaron Mostovsky, he is like this, what is he, the son of a prominent Orthodox figure in Brooklyn and a former president of the National Council of Young Israel. He was elected to the Kings County Supreme Court last January. That's his dad. It's like some big macher in Brooklyn. And there's a picture of this kid, Aaron, wearing like furs and a bulletproof vest and like a staff. And, and he's in a photo in the Capitol right next to the guy walking around with a Confederate flag. And immediately I thought, what does this guy think when he sees Camp Auschwitz? Like, what do you do when you think you're among these people? It's what you, it's what you said, Mark. I mean, that guy, like, because he was there doesn't mean that he, like, it's okay that he's Jewish in the eyes of all these other guys, you know? Like, it's just such weird company to keep. Right, and the Confederate guy, even if he's all about hating the Black people and not the Jews, don't think that he's going to be a righteous upstander for you when one of his buddies thinks it's all about the Jews. I mean, that's the mistake, is thinking, well, they invited me to the party. These are the good guys. The other weird thing, so then the next day, outside the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is in downtown Manhattan, someone, like, tied a Confederate flag to the front doors. And right outside the front doors, there is, like, a boxcar, like a model of the one that when it would have gone to Auschwitz. Like, it's right in front of the museum. It's very attention-grabbing. And then someone just, like, tied a Confederate flag. That, to me, I did not quite understand because I think when we see Confederate flags, I'm like, oh, that's racist. Like, that's, like, I don't think necessarily anti-Semitism. 
But I guess you couldn't put like a Nazi flag. Like I just, I think it's just. It's all one big it, yeah. happy family of hatred. First of all, Nazi flags are probably way harder to buy on Amazon than Confederate flags. Oh, there are Confederate flags on the backs of pickup trucks in Connecticut. I was driving behind one the other day up Whaley Avenue. Yeah, but if you saw like a swastika on the back, you'd be like, what the fuck? That would creep me out a little bit more, but only because it's less common. I mean, they're both super duper creepy. And I want to say, by the way, as the only Jew here of, of Confederate heritage, you know, given that I had a grandfather, a, not given to that brag, I had a great grandfather, but... not to brag, given that I had a great grandpa from Judah Arkansas Benjamin? and a grandma from Lake Charles, Louisiana, not cool, not cool. Southern Jews got to reject that Confederate heritage, you know, and I don't think any of my people fought for the, the South. Do any embrace it? I mean, do any embrace it? I, I don't know, actually. That would be a question for our Southern Jewish friends. That's actually a great question for the J. Crew. I'm really curious. I mean, I have lots of Southern relatives and my grandma was from the South, but they didn't, as far as I know, lean into the Confederate heritage. But I wouldn't be surprised if some did. Look, this is this was Theodore Herzl's great vision all along, right? That one day Jews would feel normal enough that there would be Jewish police officers chasing Jewish robbers and, and Jewish people rioting in the Capitol together with non-Jewish people wearing horns. It's, it's almost like we're normal people and have our dumb assholes. By the way, it's all apocryphal, right? I mean, the line you usually hear is, you know, we'll know that the Jews have their own homeland when it's Jewish cops arresting Jewish pimps for pimping Jewish prostitutes. I mean, the versions of that apocryphal thing that Herzl probably never said. Right. It's a little bit, it's a little bit too specific. <laughs> it's so specific. Stephanie, I agree with you. It's a thousand percent creepy. I also agree with Liel that I kind of want to go to any weird party, which is why I'm glad that I can always play the journalist card. Because of course, if any of the three of us were on the inside, we'd be taking notes and we wouldn't actually be partying. And it is, you know, my my fascination with this deep underbelly of the world. It goes pretty far. And I, I wish I understood it better. I don't understand that guy. I don't understand what they they think they're doing. And uh, maybe the J. Crew can help explain it for us. Would any of you have charged in? Any of you have Confederate leanings? And let us end, as always, with a note of extreme gratitude for those men and women in law enforcement who stood and defended our nation with their body and May they continue to do their work and bring all those who took part in this shameful incident on Wednesday to swift and utmost justice. By the way, what about the journalists and the photojournalists? I mean, the, there was a Times photojournalist who got like attacked and her camera was broken. And like these people were out there taking video of all of this. That's how we know what happened is because people inside were brave enough to do their, you know, their unarmed jobs, right? To just be reporters. My favorite note about this, by the way, is that a lot of pictures started circulating and the credit line read via Getty. And then on Twitter, a lot of people thought that Via Getty was a new MAGA leader. Be like, who's Via Getty? She got the best photos of this. Oh my God. Is she like a Trump supporter? It's like, yeah, Via Getty is huge. Mike Rothschild is a conspiracy theory researcher and debunker. He's written extensively about QAnon. And a couple months ago, we sat down with him. This was before the attacks on Capitol Hill last week. But I think you're going to find that it's not, not relevant to what's going on in our world. Well, 
We are here with Mike Rothschild. He's a writer and researcher on conspiracy theories. His book, The World's Worst Conspiracies, came out in January, and he is currently researching and writing extensively about the QAnon conspiracy theory. Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So I first heard you on an episode of Reply All, a different podcast, a few weeks ago, and I thought you were really smart and interesting, and you had a lot to say, but what I could not stop thinking about was that you are a conspiracy theory researcher whose name is literally Rothschild. It's come up once or twice before. Does everyone ask you about your name or just Jews? Well, first of all, yes, almost everyone asks me about my name. And just to clear things up, I am not related in any way to the Rothschild banking family. How did you get into this line of work? I always loved conspiracy theories and weird stories. I got really into the Art Bell radio show, Coast to Coast AM, when I was in college. He was on like two to five in the morning. That was like the insomniac's dream. Yeah, it was great if you were staying up all night working on something to have Art Bell sort of chattering in the background about crop circles and UFOs and secret societies. I always loved the stories. I never believed any of them, but they were always really compelling and interesting and sort of way far afield from anything else that was in my life. And I started writing for the blog of a critical thinking podcast that I listened to. And that turned into more writing gigs and then eventually my first book and now another book. And this is now pretty much what I do. Let's get down to the latest important conspiracy theory in the United States, QAnon. Explain to us what the heck it is, because we know at least one new member of Congress is is deep in, even if she now seems to be claiming to distance herself from it a little bit. QAnon is a cultish conspiracy theory that holds that an insider attached to the Trump administration is leaking cryptic clues to an upcoming violent purge of the deep state that will be carried out any moment now and has been about to be carried out any moment now for the last three years. Can you explain like who a Q is and like what a Q drop is? A Q drop is a post on, uh, it started off as 4chan and then became 8chan and now it's 8kun because those boards keep getting brought down. A Q drop is one of these cryptic posts that Q makes. Q is, is an unknown person or series of people who started making these drops in October of 2017. And the running theory is that the identity of who is actually making the posts has probably changed a couple of times. It probably started out as one of many, many anonymous 4chan trolls, and now is almost certainly, but not completely for sure, linked to Jim Watkins, who is the owner of 8kun, which is the board where Q posts. So there's no evidence like he was actually in any position of power or it's actually coming from inside the government? Absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Absolutely nothing Q has ever posted would require any kind of special access to any kind of government apparatus. There's just nothing. Um, There are a whole bunch of tangents and rabbit holes and sort of asides that you can get into with QAnon, but that's the basics of it, that there's a military intelligence team and it's leaking cryptic information on this upcoming purge that only special patriots who know how to decode the messages know about. And so they're the good guys, the team inside that's going to purge the deep state. Like We're supposed to be glad that they're going to purge the deep state, right? Yeah, the the deep state that they've concocted for themselves is this sort of vast interlocking series of rings of pedophiles at the very top of entertainment, finance, politics, media, you know, basically any prominent liberal or Democrat that you have heard anything about is also a secret pedophile. 
except they're also not secret because they communicate with each other using codes and symbols and typos and tweets and pictures of dogs and all sorts of sort of arcane symbols that you would only be able to interpret if you already spoke this bizarre language. Why do people believe this? People believe QAnon ultimately because it fills a hole in their lives. It explains something that they feel like needs to be explained and that the media either isn't explaining or is actively covering up. So you have all of these powerful people who seemingly get away with all of these terrible things. And rather than sort of sit back and just know that these terrible things are happening, which is what most conspiracy theories are, QAnon gives you a way to fight back. It gives you a way to be a digital soldier in the war between good and evil that only Q will tell you about. This is so, so dark. And you've actually been reaching out and have been contacted by relatives of people, right? Of survivors and victims, as you as you call it, of QAnon. What has that been like? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people from my book who have lost a loved one to QAnon, either somebody who's been... Wait, wait, but when you mean they lost a relative, you mean the relative became a QAnon follower. They didn't lose a relative to the pedophile rings. Oh, yeah. No, no. The, the, the pedophile rings don't exist. They, right, thank someone, you. Okay. Yeah, someone that they love was sucked into QAnon and has let that become their overriding worldview. Every media they consume, everything they do is sort of touched by this cult-like conspiracy theory. What are the things that people get away with that I could explain through QAnon? A lot of the stuff that they're trying to explain isn't actually real, which makes debunking it all the more harder. They really believe that people like the Clintons and people like Barack Obama are not just people they disagree with, but evil pedophiles who have done things that are so horrible that they cannot be seen or described because to see them or have accurate descriptions of them would put you in the hospital. So it's, it's a very convenient way of pinning these things on these people. There's no real proof that any of these things have happened. You have things like child sacrifices and these, these just horrible things. And the problem is you can't prove any of them are real, but in worlds like this, you don't have to prove that they're real. The people who are trying to debunk them have to prove that they're not real. And of course, that's not possible. So the belief persists because nothing gets in the way of it. It demands a level of suspension of disbelief that is pretty much impossible for most people. You know, the idea that there are these sort of hidden societies that do nothing but abuse children and, and drink their blood to retain eternal youth, but that somehow no child is ever actually alleged being kidnapped by one of these rings, abused by one of these rings. There's no credible accusations. There's no victims of a crime anywhere. So all you have is just the crime itself being repeated and made more lurid every time it's repeated. And isn't it true that like child abuse hotlines are being overrun by like, like there are actually real world implications to this, this belief structure? Yeah, there are definitely real world implications. Child abuse prevention organizations find this stuff to be a real pain to deal with. They, they are constantly getting tips about things that aren't happening. They're wasting time tracking these things down. These people think that they're fighting a war, but there is no war. It's just what they believe to be happening. So we're in a post-Trump world, right? He's he's not the next president. He will conceivably leave office in January. Q seemed to be so against all of these things. Does he gain power because Trump is out of office? Like, how do, how do they sort of explain away the results of the election? Well, right now they're in complete denial about it. If you go to the social media feed of any major Q promoter, 
what you'll see is we actually won. We won in a landslide. Trump will be the next president. Trump will be president forever. All of this was just a, an incredibly elaborate ruse to flush out the deep state's attempt to hijack the election using software and watermarked ballots and secret Sharpies and ballot burning and all of these different conspiracy theories that all add up to everything we're being told being a lie and that Joe Biden did not win and will never be sworn in. Donald Trump actually won and at some point soon will reveal that he actually won and completely own all the libs. And there's a Jewish angle, right? What my understanding is that it is an anti-Semitic theory as well. Oh, absolutely. Anti-Semitism is completely baked into QAnon. They'll deny it up and down. They, they claim to be a, a peaceful research movement and that patriots have no skin color. But if you actually read Q posts and you read the social media of these people, you can tell there is anti-Semitism just all over this. I think it's actually in the second ever Q post goes out of its way to mention how much of a villain George Soros is. There was four Q drops in early 2018, maybe, that were just lists of supposedly Rothschild central banks, which is a conspiracy theory I've been dealing with for years and that completely misunderstands the very basics of central banking. So Rothschild, tell me this. If we have a friend or loved one who is getting all queued up in there, getting sucked into the conspiracy theory or any conspiracy theory, these things are generally, as you point out, unfalsifiable. Like no evidence actually falsifies them. They're built so that any evidence you give them, they say, well, that's just what they want you to think, right? That's just part of the conspiracy, right? So is there anything we can do to begin walking them back or deprogramming them? It is possible, but it's very difficult. The idea of deprogramming or sort of getting somebody out of queue really hinges on that person wanting to no longer believe this. And sometimes that does happen. People just get tired of it. People realize how fake it all is and how they're being manipulated. But for the vast majority of people, they don't want to be pulled out of it. They want to believe it. They want it to be true. They've invested their time, they've invested their money, their emotional capital in it. You can't get somebody out of a belief that they don't want to be brought out of. If you do have somebody in your life like this, it's really important to to know that you're not going to get them out by, certainly by mocking them. That will drive them in deeper. Trying to debunk or debate them about it is an absolute waste of time. Conspiracy theorists constantly want to debate me, and I I never do it because there's really no way to win. They will always have some other nonsensical fact to pull out, and you know they can do it a hundred times, and I could knock ninety nine of them down, and by the hundredth one, I just don't want to do it anymore, and then they declare victory. But a really good thing to do with somebody who is just completely sucked into this world is to unplug them. Try to get them away from the constant churn of social media and memes and videos and discourse. Just try to get them outside for a day or two. That can break the cycle. You start to be able to really see the world again and not just what the Q promoters are putting in front of you. Trying to look at it with compassion, trying to ask simple questions, try to point out the contradictions, but not debate it. Just let them know that this doesn't make sense to you. And if you can't do it, it is completely within your rights to walk away from that person and say, 
I don't want to deal with this anymore. So if I think about conspiracy theories, like they all sort of, the root of them maybe is sort of like this idea of blood libel. And I feel like, am I just like a Jewish podcaster who's so in this that I'm like, I feel like anti-Semitism is sort of at the core of all of these in some weird nefarious way. Or like in all of these, the Jews are bad actors. Has that borne out in your research? Yeah, that's totally borne out. It is not just you. It's, It's all of these. It's always going back to blaming wealthy and powerful string pullers. And the very lazy shorthand for that is Jews. So if you want to blame your business failing or or your personal life failing or your politician not getting elected, there is a a dark cabal of wealthy puppet masters who are personally oppressing you. And it's really easy to look at the centuries and eons of anti-Jewish propaganda and go, oh, it's, it's the Jews. Why are the Jews always so wealthy? Why do the Jews always do so well and I'm not doing so well? Why are they all in the media? And it, it's really easy to make that leap. And, and Q in particular is very good about that. You know, there's always that cabal of people at the very top and they have to be getting their money from somewhere. And that somewhere is usually George Soros and the Rothschilds. I love it because they stand in as like the left and the right almost. Yeah. Like if it's any left leaning cause, you're like, oh, Soros is behind it. And then if it's any sort of like not progressive thing, you're like, oh, it's the Rothschilds. Right. Right. They're, they're the playing both sides against each other and funding both sides of the war. I mean, that that's like classic Rothschild stuff. Mike Rothschild, how paranoid are you? Like when you're in this world so much, are you afraid people are going to like come after? I mean, where are you? I'm scared for you. No, no, no. Don't be scared for me. I'm fine. I try to keep this stuff where it belongs. I try to have fun with it. You know, I try to write about this stuff in a kind of a breezy way that's accessible to people who are not steeped in it. I tend to look at it as just sort of a very normal outgrowth of human psychology. You know, we're, we're sort of programmed through millennia of evolution to see a, a shrub rustling and assume that it's a panther and that we need to get out of there. So that's really all a conspiracy theory is, is just looking at a shrub rustling and assuming that it's you know, a bunch of panthers who have been talking to each other in panther language about eating. And that's kind of how we stay alive. It is certainly in the earliest days of humanity. So the idea of looking for patterns and looking for enemies and finding them because we're looking for them, that's all very natural stuff. So I try to look at it as what I'm dealing with is just the human condition. It's just really toxic and mutated in a lot of the people I deal with. So listen, will you promise that next time you see a good Jew angle to a conspiracy theory, you drop us a line so we can have you back on for just, you know, a little a little bissel of fun? Sure, absolutely. A Rothschild drop? <laughs> <laughs> Your website is themikerothschild.com. Lots of cool stuff there. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. No, thanks for having me on. Mailbox. Okay, some killer mail this week. Shabbat shalom, Mark. A listener writes, I found your podcast on conversion and loved it, but you left out something very important. It seems every convert is converting either for marital reasons or by accident. That's unfortunate because I think we have something great, the greatest way to live a life. Therefore, I propose marketing Judaism to the world. If we think we have something great, why shouldn't we compete with all the other religions, lifestyles, cults, etc.? I always say if someone's happy with their religion, leave them alone. But look how many non-Jews have no religion. 
Why shouldn't we have Jewish missionaries competing with Christian, Muslim, and hundreds of cult missionaries running around with their Fakakta products? Let's offer Judaism to the public and show them its greatness. All the best to your mishpucha, the Yedidut Irwin, who, parenthesis, it turns out is married to Sarah Fredman Ader's childhood dentist, Dr. Penny. Now that that's been established, Liel, Stephanie, what do we think of Irwin's suggestion? Should we be out missionizing to the non-Jews? He mentions cults. Nexium, I think, is on the way down. We could go in and really recruit there heavily for Judaism. <laughs> you guys seem needy. You guys seem like you need a code. As I'm sure Irwin is aware, this is a chestnut. It's a favorite subject of discussion and has been for about 2,500 years. There are, of course, historical reasons about why Jews had not done this, mainly because... Because you got killed if you did. That's exactly right. It seemed prudent not to. But there's actually this great, big, philosophical, beautiful reason that inspires the famous, you know, you must be turned down three times before you're seriously considered as a candidate for conversion, which is this. I think for something like religion, as opposed to, as he said, Fakakta product. Fakakta cults. Fakakta cults. Fakakta is a great name for a cult, by the way. (laughs) Like, where are you going? Oh, this Fakakta thing. Don't worry about it. You know, you really want to make sure that whoever comes around to it, comes around to it for the purest, best, most sort of soulful reasons. And I, I can't tell you how much I love it that you discover Judaism, if your soul yearns for it, if your soul wants to return home for whatever reason, it will find its way there. Cheapening it, likening it to a a marketing scheme, that to me brings the whole thing down. And this is not to knock other faiths that do this and do this well, and, and they provide a lot of comfort to people who need it, and that's fine. But I think there's something very special about being the product that doesn't advertise, you know, being the club that just awaits you to discover it. I love that. Couldn't disagree more. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. I love the mystical faith that you have, Liel, that people for whom it is their home, who are meant to come home to it, will find it. But of course, who are we kidding? The reality is that there may be thousands, tens, hundreds, thousands of thousands of people out there who would feel at home in Judaism and whose lives would be improved by joining our wandering family who never encounter it or never encounter it in a meaningful and interesting way. And that's because it's really hard to encounter. Most Americans live in communities where it's really hard to bump into any Jew, not to say anything of most people in the world who live in lands that are almost Jew-free. So the question is, could we have some sort of little, not pushy, we're not going to, we're not door knockers. We're not, you know, Latter-day Saints. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. But is there some- Like a light push. A light push. Little outlets that maybe drew you in with falafel or magazines or (laughs) foot massages. And once in, you get chatting and you're perfectly frank. I do this because I'm a Jew and I want to spread, you know, the message of ethical monotheism. And if you're interested, here's a pamphlet. And we're foot washing to show this really important part of our faith. Oh, wait, no, no, I got that wrong, right? I I believe firmly that Hashem is our chief marketing officer. And as such, he has a very sophisticated marketing plan for each and every one of us uh, that hits us exactly where we live. It's super targeted advertising, the likes of which you haven't seen. And he leads us to where we need to be. What is his click-through rate, though? It's very, very high. (laughs) The engagement is through the roof. I just think that's so precious. We've all met people who strike us as having Jewish neshamas, where you think, yeah, you're kind of, you're kind of Jewy for whatever reason. And all this person is saying is, shouldn't we invite them somewhere and say, do you want to learn more? Or, but we don't. I shouldn't be so ashamed to be seen as pushy that I don't 
offer them something they might want. Well, look, if we want them to be Jewish, they're going to need to know that we're pushy. Like, they're going to figure it out at some point. <laughs> Don't hide that fact. Here's a great compromise. Maybe maybe instead of leading them straight to Judaism, we begin by leading them to, to a podcast <laughs> where they could, like, just hang out for a while. It's kind of a purgatory, if you will. <laughs> it's a step. A real liminal, exactly. liminal period. So first of all, if you want to convert to Judaism, let's, let's you know, advocate for an Orthodox. And then we'll see. We'll take it from there. Slow, slow. Diving back into the mailbox, we continued to get a lot of mail about Jews and ice hockey. It turns out that our wonderful listener, Amy Kroll, led us astray when she said that there's a player for the Toronto Maple Leafs named Zach Efron. We were really charmed to find out that movie heartthrob Zach Efron also played ice hockey. Turns out that she got it wrong. She admitted that. She wrote to us, so did many others. That player is named Zach Hyman. But the general gist of all of the mail was that Liel and I are, are total Philistines, that Jews have to come to terms with how Jewy ice hockey is as a sport. And I have to say thank you for the correspondence. I'm not feeling it yet, but I'm, Liel, maybe you are? I am. One thing that we do in Unorthodox, and I think we do it well, is sort of mirror the spirit of civic engagement, of trying to find common ground, of admitting mistakes, of keeping an open mind. And here's what I'm going to do. It is the second week of January in a brand new year that doesn't look too good, but maybe will we'll offer some comfort. So I'm going to take a pledge to you, my fellow hosts, but more importantly, to those very committed listeners. This year, I am going to do my utmost to learn to love or at least appreciate, or at the very, very least tolerate ice hockey. I am going to start this Wednesday, a day before the show airs, which is the first day of the season. I'm going to watch at least two matches or games or confrontations, whatever they're called. And, and I do this in the spirit of love and respect for those listeners who, who wrote in to, to really share their passion and tell me why they think this game is so beautiful. But here's the thing, I need help because I'm a primitive tribal person who literally cannot enjoy a sport unless he really, really likes someone and really, just as important, really, really hates someone else. So I kind of already know that I'm gonna hate whatever team plays in Boston because that's usually how I do in professional sports. You're anti-Bruins. We'll start with you being anti-Bruins. They're the nemesis. I probably don't like them, but now I need a team. And so I would like the help of the J Crew. I'd like for you to write in and saying, if I am going to watch hockey and I promise you that I will do this with the most open heart and the most, you know, open mind, what team should I root for and why? The J Crew has so much homework this week. I know. The names, the conversion question, hockey. I will just say, I, I wish you well on that journey. I have nothing to offer to that journey. You're, you're sailing out without my help. You know, I wish you luck, Liel, in finding your hockey path. Share. That's right. Hashem brings you to your hockey team when it's time. He brings you to the right team. He opens the doors for you. It's you don't so have to knock It's so weird Christ. that you don't like hockey. Just the pure aggression. Like, I feel like you would like it. Like, to play it. You would like to play it. That's why I would keep my heart and, and mind open. Here's our next letter. Hi, Unorthodox. Huge fan of the podcast. With the election of Raphael Warnock in Georgia, woohoo! My friend Monica Rachel Sass of Ohio. Wait, don't we know the Sasses of Ohio? Do we? I feel like they've been like at a live show somewhere. Anyway, she engaged me in a thought experiment that I thought you should weigh in on. As Warnock is a preacher, we we're wondering what circumstances would be necessary to elect a rabbi to the Senate. We've determined that a rabbi could definitely win a house race. The circumstances in question are the political party, state, denomination, and gender of the rabbi. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Best, Maddie Frischer from Chicago, Illinois. This is, I was not expecting this question to go there. First, I want to say that any conversation about Warnock has to mention John Ossoff, which we haven't talked about all week. He, like, nice Jewish boy wins Senate race, really got overshadowed very quickly. Yes. There's a lot of people in the running. Uh, Zach Braff, like, tweeted at Lauren Michaels and was like, 
I want to play him on SNL. I feel like I look a little bit like John Ossoff. I'll play him on SNL. I know every Jewish man is like, let me play him. But but Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, would be perfect. And the (laughs) other suggestion people are saying is Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) How amazing is that? So anyway, so what circumstances would be necessary to elect a rabbi to the Senate? Here's the thing. It's the Tim Scott principle, right? Black senator from South Carolina. It's got to go against type. I mean, it is definitely possible that it could be a reform rabbi from Albany who wins a New York Senate race, right? But that's actually hard because if you're really a practicing rabbi, to lay the groundwork in a big state like New York or California probably takes too much time out of your rabbinate. At that point, you're a rabbi in name only, okay? But if you were in a Southern state and you were a fairly religious rabbi who was allying with with Christian conservatives, you couldn't be a woman because they'd be too suspicious of, of female preachers, female clergy. So it's a Republican conservative, let's say conservative movement, but leaning conservadox in practice, male rabbi in Arkansas, where you also get a lot of Christian messianic, we love the Jews, philo-Semitic votes. I have a variation on, on that theme. I think you're completely right with one exception. The exception is it's not a Southern state. It's a Western state with mm. a with a smaller population where voter registration actually means much more. And then you get a critical mass by basically establishing this coalition together. And you have one or two kind of weird, quirky against type views that allow you to make common cause with one or two more groups that are outside sort of core conservative base. And then you win. I want to say that, you know, we really forget about Eric Cantor, but he was at one point like poised to be the highest ranking Jewish politician. I mean, he was from Virginia and he spoke about his faith. Like he spoke in a way that, Mark, you're talking about, right? Like he Mm -hmm. understood how to translate Judaism to sort of a Southern audience. Um, He definitely fellowshipped with, you know, a lot of them. (laughs) Just run a search that finds out, you know, who's a Jewish clergy person who uses the word fellowship a lot. And you're you're halfway there. I mean, it's us. A thousand percent right. Here's a question, because it's 20. 2021, could we divide responsibilities three ways? Can we have like a seat and then do it like a third of the time, each of us? Because I would totally do that. Wait, I thought we were running for Knesset. I can't keep track of all of our various. That's right. We're running for a lot of stuff. It's it's all on Zoom anyway. It doesn't matter. Liel, will you read the last letter, please? Hey there, my favorite podcasters of all time, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. I am going to throw my two cents in about Tasty Cakes v. Drake's Cakes. I grew up eating only Drake's cakes. They had a hechsher while Tasty Cakes did not get theirs until 2004. That's point Drake's cakes. It's the kosher certification. Of course. What I really wanted was to eat Hostess brand, Shonda. Everyone at school had Twinkies, Ho-Hos, and fruit pies. And by the way, I went to a Jewish day school where we weren't supposed to have treif. I mean, who wants a ring-ding or a yodel when you could have a ding-ding or a ho-ho? By the way, these are all code names for like people in the dating pool. Like, I don't want that yodel. I want a a ho-ho. I felt totally deprived. I mean, snowballs, all pink and coconutty, just looked like heaven. On the flip side, my poor brother, who is eight years younger than I am, grew up on Little Debbie. I guess love had run out in the family. Of course, there was also Entenmann's and Sarah Lee, the cookies of choice for dessert after Friday night dinner. Love, love, love the podcast. Stephanie, Pink Mama, Freyden. Already, I think, a candidate for best name of the year. Yeah. Yes, Stephanie, Pink Mama, Freyden. Yeah. That's how she signs her names. Do you agree with any of this, Mark, as, as our pastry correspondent? I'm going to let that stand as it is. I think that Stephanie, Pink Mama, Freyden has added some important nuances and textures to, to the discussion. I'm Her footnotes on footnotes, I think, are really important. And the fact that she they're written in Rashi script, as this particular Talmudic commentary should be, added something to it. Write to us at orthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914. 
So before we get to our next interview, we have to talk about our 5th of Shvat celebration. So, okay, it is about to be the 5th of Shvat, a really important holiday that regular listeners will know we completely made up, essentially to save face after Liel and all, I guess it was all of us. We all got a voicemail referencing me. the 15th of Shvat, which is Tuba Shvat, uh, which anyone who has gone to Hebrew school knows is the, the new year of the trees, basically, uh, Jewish Arbor Day. And we misheard that person. We thought they were saying the 5th of Shvat. We got called out by a hundred majillion people who were telling us we were idiots. We are idiots, but not so stupid that we don't know how to make our own holiday out of it. So here is now our, our celebration, I would say, of the 5th of Shvat, this sacred day. We cleared it up really early. It is not a fast day. And if it would be a fast day, it'd be one of those little bitty guys, um, but it's not. Morning to night, not 24 hours, right? Okay. It's actually a reverse fast day. You have to eat. There's like very specifics, you know, the seven species. There's all sorts of things. So Liel, what's going on here on this day? So I think that there, there, there are three minhagim, right? There, there are three customs that I think need to be observed very, very closely. The first is that the celebration concludes with Andy Cohen, the famous Jewish TV host, hosting a fifth of Shvat special on Bravo called Watch Shvat Happens Live, which will gather all of the Jewish television stars for a special fifth of Shvat celebration in which we celebrate our successful control of the media. In addition, following one of our listeners' suggestions that on the fifth of Shvat, you ought to drink a fifth of something, preferably scotch. And then I want to add, because I do agree that it's a heavily food-related holiday, I think that because Tubishvat is only 10 days later and is this very wholesome ecological holiday that's all about trees and you're eating fruit, I think you should do exactly the opposite on the 5th of Shvat. I think every single one of your meal has to be highly processed and preferably come from a major junk food provider wait, or- Wait, here yeah. are the species. They are tasty cakes. They are Drake's cakes. Correct. They are little Debbies. They are the, the trifecta, uh, the holy yep. trinity, as we say, um, mm -hmm. of this holiday. There we go. This is the day you you announce your allegiance, your tribe of snack food. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. It's a friendly shake, and do and we eat them it. around a bonfire? Yes, producer Josh. Yeah. If your observance permits, <laughs> you should also have a fillet of fish. <laughs> sure. Fish sure. Why not a fish majig? A fish majig. Um, We're taking those seven food groups and you will live a long, healthy life. I also think we need t-shirts. Like I think this holiday needs some swag. Um, we're talking about, we talked yep. earlier about marketing Judaism. Let's market the heck out of this holiday. I, I, with the staff on the back, maybe we're like fifth of Shvat staff, taking it back. <laughs> we are taking Camp, that back. Camp fifth of Shvat. Um, totally, absolutely. And it, it, it needs it needs carols. It needs a jingle, but the jingle is called a carol because it's an upside down type day. You can go fifth of Shabbat caroling around the bonfire as you eat your little Debbies. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award nominated best play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, friends, I've been wanting to rope this guy in as a Gentile of the Week really ever since Unorthodox started. Stefan Fatsis is an NPR commentator, a widely published sports writer, the author of Word Freak, the definitive book about competitive Scrabble. He's also a totally awesome Scrabble player himself. And he also, as it happens, along with some college buddies, founded the Name of the Year competition, which for a quarter century now has been choosing the most outrageous, amazing, wonderful to say, proper name, a person's name of the calendar year. And it has evolved over time. I wanted to get him in to talk about this because as you'll hear, I have some aspirations for a name of the year contest of our own. Our Gentile of the Week is Stefan Fatsis. According to Wikipedia, he was born on April Fool's Day. Did they get that right? They got that right. First of all, Stefan, welcome. Nice to be here, Mark. (laughs) It's it's so good to have you here. Thank you for that generous introduction. You're big in my house because we love Word Freak. We love Scrabble. I love hearing you on the radio, and I love hearing you in my earbuds. And I wrote a blurb for you years ago. Did I not? You did. You blurbed Weisenheimer about my nerdy debate past. And then, I got to say, just going deep on our relationship, you actually showed up at my reading at the suburban Barnes & Noble in Bethesda or Chevy Chase, which was such a nice thing to do on a, like a snowy night when nine other people showed up. And I still owe you a hug from that night. Oh, not now. <laughs> but not not now. So anyway, I've always been interested in the name of the year contest because at some point I discovered that my old high school acquaintance, Nimrod Weiselfish, had gotten very far in the bracket one year. Did he win? He won. Yeah, yeah. He won. So then I discovered that there were these awesome, hilarious people, many of them sports writers, who did an annual bracket of most amazing name of the year. Could you tell us what this contest is? It is basically a college silliness gone internet. My buddies and I just sort of like sophomore year, somebody posted a silly name on their dorm room door and it evolved from there. Within a year, we were collecting all the names that we had seen over the course of the year in newspapers and magazines. 
and having an impromptu vote and getting drunk at the same time. And it stuck, you know, we just kept doing it. It was a way for us to hang out and get together once a year. And then sometime in the late 1990s, one of our friends had the genius notion to turn this into an NCAA basketball tournament style event. (laughs) So that was the first bracket was born in 1998. LA St. Louis was the champion that year. And then we kept doing that. And then the internet rolled around in a serious way. And we created a website, which is now defunct because we're you know incompetent and let the domain name lapse. So we need to revive that. But we took it to the people. And we've uh, been letting humans, other than the dozen or so of us, vote for the last decade plus online. This year, we were hosted by uh, the former Deadspin folks who started the unnamed Temporary Sports blog, which has evolved into Defector, which is where I assume the name of the year tournament will live in 2021 and beyond, I hope. But it's gone public, and since it's gone public, that's been a ton of fun. So when we say name of the year, how do you define what what you're looking for? Most ridiculous, most amazing, most memorable? What is what is the name of the year? Or do you just leave it undefined? It really is undefined. It's very sort of Potter Stewart. You know, I know it when I see it. It's what makes <laughs> right. you happy. It's what you find amusing. It's what is creative or sensational or silly or improbable. Very often, it's a name that has sort of historical references or cadences. Sometimes it's just the way the the syllables flow out of your mouth. It is what you want it to be. And I think that's the beauty of not only our silly little effort to catalog and vote on interesting names, but also the study of onomastics. I mean, this is an academic discipline. People have studied names for centuries. And we have no pretensions toward academic seriousness here, but there is a sort of grounding in the way that human beings name each other and themselves often and how we interpret those names. So you're an amateur, what would you, ono, onomastician? Onomastician. Onomast- that sounds dirty. It does. But... <laughs> It's, it, it need not be. So I'm just looking at some of, I'm looking at the 2020 bracket and I'm seeing like, you know, in the first round, Robespierre Boulevard squared off against Zeke Biggers Boulevard one, Billy Jack Buzzard. Classic, right? Classic, classic, classic matchup of a name with historical, <laughs> that reverberates historically with something that just sounds funny. In fact, double historical, Robespierre Boulevard. And Boulevard, right, yeah. Zach Biggers. Now, I know that one of the things that people think about, and you've addressed this, is the question of whether names that people have chosen for themselves, name changes, are admissible. And I've seen, you know, you and the other founders have gone back and forth on it. Obviously, you don't send a fact checker after every one of these names to make sure it's on a birth certificate. Some people adopted the name later in life. How, where do you come down on that? Explain to me that controversy. This dates way back to one of the very early names of the year. Her, her name is Crescent Dragon Wagon, and she is a very famous children's book author. She was name of the year in 1993. And she changed her name in a sort of fit of teenage excitement and rebellion and stuck with it. And it has become her professional name. And she is, I'm sorry, she's a cookbook author, Crescent Dragon Wagon. Her mother was a famous children's book author. But not a dragon wagon. Charlotte Zolotow, but not a dragon wagon. She was Charlotte (laughs) Zolotow. And our feeling is that if someone goes to the effort of legally changing their name, that's their name. And I don't have a problem with it. Others would disagree. So you've been doing this since the first year was 1990. No. 
No. <laughs> no. I was an undergraduate in 1983, which was the first year that we did this. Oh, so we're coming up on the 40th anniversary. Obviously, there'll be a party for that. In all those years, do you have some favorites? Oh, yeah. Among winners? Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of Assumption Boltron, who was a, uh, <laughs> an inmate that a friend of one of the founders, a lawyer, discovered in an affidavit, which I think sort of, again, it's got the, an improbable first name, a word that's been, that's been repurposed with an absurd portmanteau. I guess it really isn't a portmanteau, but it's an absurd sort of seemingly made up last name of Boltron. I, I love them all, but, you know, Destiny Frankenstein, another <laughs> classic. She was a softball player at the University of Kansas in the 2000s. I think that is, you know, again, absurd. And similarly, a word you wouldn't think of as a first name, destiny, with a historical figure, literary figure, Frankenstein. And it's Frankenstein, so that's funny. And the following year, Barkevius Mingo, NFL player. <laughs> Barkevius, Bark, seems made up. Mingo, where did that come from? Again, like the, the sort of the roots of trying to sort of understand why someone is named what they are and how that happens is really, it's like the imagination. I noticed in the, in the discussion that you guys had that was posted on Vulture, one of your gang, it might have been Drew McGarry, yeah, he was saying that one of the people was Math Daniel Squirrel. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that he really likes the idea that it's there's potential for two root words there. Drew McGarry, a former Gentile of the Week, by the way, said, as for Math Daniel, I'm hoping that both Math and Daniel catch on his word roots, like Math Jim, Mathella, La Daniel, <laughs> Aus Daniel, things of that nature. <laughs> you know, so there's certain roots that just sound kind of awesome. He also noted, or one of you noted, that it's a combination of two. It sounds like a compromise between Matthew and Daniel. The parents got together. They couldn't decide whose grandpa to name it after. So boom, Math Daniel. And this is one of the wonders of names, right? I looked at Math Daniel and I thought, math, mathematics and Daniel. And then one of the, our, our uh, panelists said, no, Matthew and Daniel. And it was like, it was sort of like a thunderbolt struck me. <laughs> like that is even more, I'm not sure which is more brilliant, the combination of Matthew and Daniel or the possibility that there was someone who liked mathematics and was named Daniel and jam them together. But again, that sort of creativity is what can make a name leap out and squirrel. I mean, did you know there were people who had the surname squirrel? I didn't. I didn't, but thank God. Back to our friend Nimrod Weiselfish, who's one of the best looking humans I've ever seen and dated my friend Karina in high school. You know, what's interesting about that is, of course, Nimrod is a biblical, you know, it's a Hebrew Bible name. It's not funny in Israel where people are, are named Nimrod. Like, it's it's a name. It sounds funny in America because it's one of those Hebrew names, Jewish names, that has been used as a kind of insult. Like, I remember as a kid on the playground, you might say sometimes, don't be such a Nimrod. Right. So Nimrod's funny if you have no idea that it's actually a Hebrew Bible name. Once you know it, it's a little less funny. It still has a funny sound if you're raised in America, but it's a little less funny because it's, frankly, it's a name that now is sort of being made fun of a little bit. And so now I think Nimrod Weiselfish is a fabulous name and we all thought it at the time. But do you ever worry that part of what's being funny about something is its ethnic quality? Of course. This is something that, you know, has personally troubled me for many, many years. And it's also something that we discuss almost every year and throw names out of the running for the bracket because it just doesn't feel right. And, and I think particularly now, it feels less right often as we've gotten older than 19 and society has changed. We try to be more careful about that. But yeah, one of the things I've never been a fan of is names from foreign languages 
that are words in English that are either scatological or mostly scatological, actually. I mean, Tokyo Seshuale was a name of the year, and it's spelled sex whale. So you look at it and you think sex whale. So yeah, I mean, Nimrod is interesting because Nimrod became a slur or another mean or a word meaning a idiot or a jerk because the historical figure Nimrod is associated with trying to build the Tower of Babel. And because the Tower of Babel proved to be a really dumb idea, right. the word became synonym for a stupid person. Interesting. Yeah. I have this crazy idea that I want to run a, a names bracket for Jewish name of the year. And there's going to be no way that it's not going to play on the hilarity, I think probably of people who are not native to these communities, whether it's yeshivish or Hebrew speaking or whatever. If you have a guy whose name is like Shlomo Ben Shlomi or Shlomi Ben Shlomo, it's going to be kind of funny. And to some people it won't be funny at all. Just be, yeah, that's, that's the dude's <laughs> name. But uh, so we'll worry about that. We'll, we'll receive the hate mail. Can you just give us some advice in setting up the bracket? Like what, what's the process? Does it start as a Google doc? Do you guys have a big conference call? Give me some, some pointers. Yeah, it's a Google. Doc. We receive nominees from the general public. We have an email address, name of the year at gmail.com. And we tend to get, you know, upwards of four or five hundred submissions, individual submissions every year. And pre-COVID times, we uh, would get together at a bar in New York on one evening in like February or March and spend three hours, you know, wetting our pants, laughing at these names as they pop up. So my my college buddies and I, in, you know, about a decade ago, we kind of got just sort of worn down and we had children and lives and let this lapse one year. And there were some undergraduates at Northwestern who decided to pick up the mantle <laughs> and they published their own bracket online. And I was suddenly very offended by that. So I reached out to them and brought the next generation into the fold. So these guys are very diligent about going through the email inbox and collecting all of the names into our Google Doc. Basically, you turned them into interns is what you did. <laughs> yes, we did. But we give them full credit. Uh, okay. And the same pay that we get. So we are. And they, as we used to do, we want to make sure that the people actually exist. So we do verify, and I'm there <laughs> quoting here on Zoom, by finding a link from a, we hope, reputable news outlet or publication. Um, yeah, and we try to avoid private citizens. I mean, Nimrod Weiselfish, who again, for pronunciation reasons, everyone sort of would say weaselfish. You know, this was 25 years ago or whatever. We didn't ensure that he was a real person, though it was like a friend of a friend. So, and over the years, like you can tell Nimrod that like 10 people have said, oh, I went to high school with him. So we, we, we do verify and we do try to not, we don't like troll the phone book or Facebook looking for names. And we've had issues with this in the past where we've put up a name of a private person and they have emailed and said, you know, what am I doing here? Why are you doing this? I'm offended. Please take me down. And we take them down. So we try to have, make sure it's somebody that's been in the media, whether, you know, it's in a news story or somewhere okay. that is not just a private citizen in whitepages.com. Sounds very, very fair. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And we might bring you back at some point to help us adjudicate once we get our bracket going. But let your, really let your, just let your, it's a gut feeling, you know, <laughs> identifying what makes a great name, it's a personal preference. It is an art, not a science. Though I feel like there is some science, and if I ever eventually write the name of the yearbook, I will explore the science of what makes a good name, whether it's the combination of particular letters or words or, or the way it sounds. I mean, there are many factors that go into, I think, 
the platonic ideal of a name. I think Kobe Buffalo Meat from 2017. <laughs> was he the winner? Just to throw just to throw him out there. He won. He won. Football player. It seems he was great. This just occurred to me now, but it seems like it's very heavily weighted toward male names. Are boys' names or names that sort of read male funnier to an American English-trained ear than female names? I don't know. Destiny Frankenstein Fair is enough. a first ballot hall of namer. And, <laughs> you know, we've had plenty of women champions. Princess No Candy. Uh-huh. Amanda Miranda Panda. There's no shortage. Crescent Dragon Wagon. How have you not done this book yet? I mean, I like the two books you've done, but how have you not, <laughs> how have you gotten into, into your, you know, second half of life and not written this book? Because I've always been working on something else, but at some point in my life, I swear, I'm going to set six months aside and get this done. For the love of God, I mean, it writes itself at this point. Two final bits of business before I let you go and we conclude your first but not last Gentile of the Week appearance. The first, I have a question for you. And the second, I hope you have a question for me. My question for you is, and this is a Scrabble question, I'm pretty upset about the fact that the Scrabble dictionary now accepts chi, Q-I, because it seems to have changed the game entirely. You don't have to hoard use anymore. Is this a pro? I mean, in the Scrabble community, are you feeling like, oh, at last? Or are you feeling what I'm feeling, which is it's kind of, taken one of the interesting obstacles out of the game. Well, first of all, Chi was added in 2005, so... We only found out about New Haven last year, but okay. <laughs> We've had plenty of time to adjust. Okay, you've dealt with it. I get it. So Chi and Za, Z-A, pizza, were added at the same time. And yes, yes, it completely changed the game. There's no doubt that strategically it altered how you consider the queue, how the queue is valued as a tile in the game. Not by much. It's still the worst tile by far, but also just the and scoring because suddenly a two-letter word with a queue could give you 60 plus points if you drop it on a triple-letter score, square two directions. But competitive Scrabble players just looked at it as an opportunity. An expansion of the language is a good thing. It's more opportunities to make plays and score more points, and it offers a challenge. How now do I have to consider the way that I view this letter and the way that I handle it when it shows up on my rack? That's interesting. So as for za, recently, one of my kids played against me, za's, Z-A-S, plural, several pizzas that you order when your rents are out of the house. And I challenged it saying, that's absurd. Za is a mass noun. You can't have za's. No, no, no. Your child, of course, is smarter than you are. Child much smarter than I am. Just intuited, knew it, said, of course you could have za's. And, uh, you know, I went down in flames. So yes. Zen was recently added and you cannot have zens. So Thank if you. that kid sticks an S on zen, don't let him get away with I'll get her. I'll get her. I realized that you are married to a member of the tribe. So some of your questions about Jews, and you went to Penn for fuck's sake. So it's like, it's not like you don't know from Jews. <laughs> I think I am the only Gentile uh, founder of Name of the Year. <laughs> but do you have, as we always do offer the Gentile of the Week an opportunity if you have any questions that haven't been answered in your, as you've been dancing along the path of life. Anything about Judaism that we, that I can answer for you since you have me here? Sure. I mean, it's Tanaka season. We've been lighting candles sporadically. I mean, I have to say my Jewish wife is not the most faithful follower. So we, we I think we hit six of the eight nice, nights. Nice. Not a terrible track record, 75%. So tell me, tell me about the candles. Why eight? Why the Shamus? Why is the Shamus so great? So 
I'm going to give you two answers, one of which is kind of banal and probably you've heard a version of it. The other one is actually going to interest you as a, as a word guy. You know, so it's based on the story of Hanukkah where the oil allegedly after the temple was destroyed, they thought they only had enough oil for one night, but it burned for eight nights. And so as a result, there was a tradition. This is not in Torah. It's not, you know, in the original scripture, but it sort of came along. There's a tradition that you proclaim the miracle. And that's actually kind of the commandment, as it were. You're not only supposed to light them, you're supposed to put in the window because these candles announce that you remember that the miracle happened. So the reason you use candles and don't just kind of have a dinner like Passover and tell the story or whatever is that the candles give you the opportunity, first of all, they connect to the, the oil wick burning in the, that they found in the ruins of the temple, but also they give you the opportunity to proclaim the miracle. So it's kind of all of a piece of like Jewish pride, you're announcing it, et cetera. Now the shamash, as you note, is the helper candle. It's the ninth candle or it's the extra candle. So on the night when there's only one candle, you actually have two. And the night when there are eight candles, you have nine because you have a helper candle. This is really interesting. It's from a Hebrew and Yiddish meaning a helper or an assistant. So at the synagogue, the beetle, the sexton, the person who turns on the lights, closes the door, takes out the trash, is known as a shamas. Same word, shamas, shamash, depending on your pronunciation. But also, you know the Irish term for a private investigator, a shamus? Yeah. Same root. I never put those together. And it's because, and I discovered this after I read Michael Shabon's novel, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, where I was noticing these homologies. He was using Seamus and Shamus, and I kind of did a little work on it. It seems to be the same root, and it basically, the Irish took it in, or English, or Anglo-Saxon or whatever, took it in from Hebrew, I think, because it's basically the person who cleans up, who takes out the dreck, who's like sweeps out the trash, the way the private investigator like cleans up your mess. It's the helper, it's the assistant, it's kind of the janitor. So the same helper route that helps with the candle by lighting them, sort of the assistant, is also the person in the synagogue who's your assistant, who's also the kind of private investigator who you pay to kind of work stuff out for you. You're on your OED right now checking me on that, aren't you? I am exactly doing that. Is it? Am I right? <laughs> am I right? Seamus, S-H-A-M-U-S, U.S. slang, a police officer, a private detective, first known use, 1925, Sharmus, a detective, a cop. They don't make the connection. Huh. Okay. It says origin uncertain, perhaps Shamash or the Irish proper name Seamus. I'm going to go with their perhaps. Go with the perhaps. Stefan Fatsis, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. It has been my pleasure. This has been awesome. And we'll get back to you when we begin assembling our brackets. And uh, maybe you'll tell us how we're doing. I will. And maybe maybe there'll be some nominees for the general tournament. Sometimes, you know, you get a crossover from the regional tournament to the national tournament. I would love to think that we are double A, even triple A. All right. So Stephanie and Liel, you heard his recommendations. You know, for one thing, you don't want to intrude on the privacy of someone who's not at all a public figure. For another, you don't want to make fun of a name that actually means something thoughtful and sensible in the original language, but happens to sound obscene in the current language. You want to, you have certain guardrails. Beyond that, it's basically assonance and rhyming and mouthfeel. Tannins. <laughs> Will you guys join me in announcing the first and maybe last, we don't know, ever unorthodox Jewish name of the Look, year If it goes the way we want it to go, it will be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all in for this. I have a few, like, Talmudic style questions that I think we need to just sort of parse. What is a Jewish name? Is it just a name that's like Gary Greenberg? Like, how Jewish does it need to be? 
Do we love names that are like Milton because they sound old timey? I mean, what are our barometers? And what if the name is obviously a Jewish name, but we discover that the person it's referring to is an elder in his local Lutheran church. Yeah, I mean, I think what we want to start with is like, we know we have some listeners with some amazing names. So I want to start there. Like, I think people should be nominating themselves. People who've written in and like the Kogelmans, I want names like that. This is appreciation, right? Like I have a bad last name. I This is not making fun of people with bad names. Like this is just celebrating the absurdity of Jewish names. You know, you have an amazing last name. This is my sole criterion because I'm very, very dumb. And the only thing I care about is, is it funny? And you have a very funny last name, therefore you qualify. But wait, it's it's a little more complicated than that because I love a name like Butnick, but I also love a name like Rachel Leventhal Weiner that has three parts, each of them more Jewish than the last. Yeah, I like right? that. Super listener, Rachel Leventhal Weiner. Then we've got the people who are named Kugel and they like making Kugel, but you need a little extra knowledge to appreciate that. You know, it's Kugel on its own isn't there yet. Right, whereas, whereas I go for, for those subtle contradictions that give you the, the contretemps <laughs> that you're looking for. When I was growing up, there was a person who was a friend of a friend of a friend who came from, I believe, a long line of, I think it was Egyptian Jews, who then married super Ashkenazi people. And so his name was Suleiman Bialik, which I just, <laughs> I just thought was the greatest freaking name ever. That's what I want. Give me a good Suleiman yeah, Bialik and, and you have it. Suleiman Bialik. Yeah. Josh, uh, Sarah, Robert, any little wrinkles you want to add in? Little wrinkles in time, little additions? By the way, Josh Cross, I think your name will be on there. Best Jewish name. Totally. Totally. Yehoshua Cross. The question is, is what if they're a Jew and their name is like Christopher Cross with a C? I mean, there's a lot of Jews named Christine. Like that's a whole, you right. know. Bothers my mother to no end. It's my mother's main form of, of halachic observance <laughs> is carping about <laughs> Jews named Christopher or Christine. It drives her to distraction. We have this amazing oh essay and tablet that's called like, I'm a Jew called Christine. It's like a, a woman who converted and she's like, People tell me they're offended by my name and that's offensive to me. But so, yeah, no, I like, yeah, if you're like Christina Goldberg, that's a good name. By the way, I'm sorry. Does, does this logic apply in reverse? Like, are there Catholics who are like, Shlomo, we just can't get over <laughs> the fact that you're Shlomo. I know you converted, but. I guess it's also like, are we putting celebrities in the middle? Like, you, do you have to know the person to put them in? No, 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 not. You definitely don't have to know them. You definitely don't have to know them. Celebrities count. Five-ish Finkel, that's my vote. Well, yeah, do we include people like Five-ish Finkel, who's a ringer? He should go right into the Hall of Fame before we touch anything. Yes, that's true. I think that'll be up to us. Look, when we make up the bracket, we may decide to pre-canonize Five-ish Finkel and Tova Feldshoe and whatever. And Wait, just, what was Tova's you know, real name? Terry. Terry, yeah. It was Terry, Terry Feldshoe. Yeah, I mean, the Terry to Tova, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg's up there for sure. <laughs> I, I think we also should leave it open for people to suggest brackets because I think once we get all of these in, we may wind up with the accidental Christian bracket and the like, the Jewiest of the Jewy or the how do you spell that bracket or whatever. We'll have all these names and then we'll have the the sweet Tetzine bracket uh, and we'll decide on a winner. So listen, how are we going to do this? People can suggest names by emailing us, unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Calling us is great, 914-570-4869. You can tweet at us at unorthodox underscore pod or hit us up on Instagram at unorthodox podcast. You know, you know how to find us. And let's, uh, we're going to be collecting over the next uh, two to three weeks and we'll keep you updated. And then we'll uh, we'll do a bracket and have some votes. And, and I think, and there will be some sort of prize for whoever proposes the winning name. And whoever is the owner of the winning name, if it's a listener. Oh, Right. Or we have to track that person down and say, you have no idea who we are, but you've just won this podcast's Jewish name of the year competition. Could you imagine getting that email? It'd be like hearing from someone that you have the same last name as America's leading origami champion. 
Mazel tov. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov to NJB, uh, John Ossoff. Very proud of him. There were some great tweets that was like, he's continuing the storied Jewish tradition of having like a much more impressive Jewish wife who's like an OBGYN or something like that. <laughs> yeah, she is. Sort of similar to Douglas Emhoff, Kamala Harris's husband, who was like just so excited about his wife. Anyway, great, great memes for Jewish men this year. And I'll just add to that. The Senate is now up to 10% Jewish for the first time ever, I believe. There's a minion, you're saying. Yes, there is a minion. Oh my God. We have to get that minion going. We have to pull them all together for minion. Conspiracy theorists have at us. Luckily, no one knew about that last week. John Ossoff, because you're the newest member, you're the gabai. <laughs> Liel, do you have a, uh, a mazel tov? I do. I received a lovely little package in the mail from the Milk and Honey Distillery straight out of my hometown of Tel Aviv. And it delighted me to no end that in Tel Aviv, they now make incredible, smooth, honey, milky whiskey that really sort of helped me get through the last week. So mazel tov, milk and honey. Looking forward to much more of that. This is an, an unpaid endorsement for Israeli scotch. And I'm going to grab two mazel tovs. One is to my daughter, Ellie, who did a great job in her very socially distanced gymnastics meet. And also a general mazel tov from the specific to the general. All of you who still send paper holiday letters or even PDFs, but I mean a real holiday letter that brags about everything your family did this year and tells us what's going on with Aunt Grace and nephew Jim Bob and Uncle Milt and his wife, Aunt Flo. There are so few of those letters and I've put out a call to receive copies of your letters, screenshots, PDFs before. This year, I got some mailed to me. I mean, we got lots of holiday cards, the photo, but I want the letter. To those of you still doing the letters, you were keeping a great American tradition alive and I, I give you a, a hearty mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email our producer, Josh Cross. That's cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. You know what? It's time to get swag again. We're going to be heading out a little bit more with that vaccine stuff and all. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to buy our shirts. Join our Facebook group. Join us on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod or Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredmanator. The associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Artwork by Esther Werdiger and theme music by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our Tequilum reader this week is Heidi Rabinowitz. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Adam Rubin of Beth Tikva Synagogue in British Columbia. And we come to you again from the scattered locations and yet ever so less scattered. I feel like more united and, and linked to each other than ever of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. But I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction and just take the fact that we're back in the pastry and, and snack cake discussion. Did we ever leave? As an opportunity to address the person in the Facebook group, which I seldom am in, but somebody sent me a screenshot, who thought that when I called someone a sociopath for eating Drake's cakes, that I literally was calling them a sociopath and called me out for participating in online abuse and trolling and cancel culture. And I just want to say that I feel like if you think that I attribute sociopathic tendencies to our dear listeners based on their choice of snack cake, and you don't realize that I was being funny, I don't think 
you're the ideal listener for this show. I feel like- Well, I feel like what I, they missed is that you you save your ire for top sheets and, sh- and like too many pillows. That's where, where you, That's where your, your where clinical diagnoses right come in. Backing into, into parking spaces. I mean, I don't actually believe anyone's a sociopath based on their choice in snack cake. Do I feel that there are poor life choices under discussion? Do I feel like there might be some bad parenting going on? Absolutely. Abso- you know what, though? I don't know if we talked about this. Someone chimed in on the Facebook group to be like, Little Debbie's is was kosher. Like, we had initially said that Little Debbie's was, like, so far in the other direction. They were like, no, I grew up eating Little Debbie's. Mark, um, I actually think you didn't get the joke about the person that you thought didn't get the joke because at the end of his whole long rant, it ends with, I'm hereby boycotting Unorthodox podcast for six days. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, well, the joke, the little Debbie's on me. 